0: Good morning, morning. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but uh, in front of you in the pews there should be a pink card and uh, you have within that card, um, oh look at this, more than I thought, a schedule of the upcoming sermons all the way up front and back to April 21st, Easter. Uh, So if you uh, want to continue to prepare for the sermons coming Uh, Each following week, this is uh, the basic plan that we'll be following uh, up until Easter, and a good way to kind of um, stay within the text and know what's coming. Open up with me now to Genesis chapter 3, so we're continuing along and be reading here from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this moment that you've given us a time to come before you in worship, and now as a part of our worship, we have the privilege of hearing your word. You now speaking to us in and through your living and active word, and we pray, God, that you would use it by your living and active spirit to confront us, to pierce our hearts, to convict us. And to bring us to a place of lowliness and humility, so that by your word and by the power of your spirit, we might respond in faith. Help us to do that now, to see Christ by faith and to cling to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been making our way through the beginning of Genesis. And if you remember, the word Genesis actually means beginning. This is a book of beginnings. We've seen the beginning of the heavens and the earth, both created by the eternal creator. God is presented to us as the one who has no beginning, but from him comes the beginning of everything else, the beginning of history, the beginning of life on earth, the beginning of humanity, and we've been discovering how good it's all been, right? When God created Adam and Eve, he did so in the context of absolute pure beauty. They lived in unparalleled splendor. All existence shining in unbroken reflection of God's beauty and glory. And the most beautiful thing about it all? Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden. This garden was like a a, a temple sanctuary of perfect shalom, peace, peace. And in this garden of peace, there was nothing but pure intimacy between humanity and God. There was perfect intimacy between Adam and Eve. The two together, man and woman, as one, reflecting the beauty and intimacy of the Trinity. Kent Hughes points out how Eve was at once Adam's daughter because she came from him. She was his sister because they both had the same creator father, and she was his one flesh wife because she was created for him. Their relational intimacy was a substantial reflection of who God is in his triune intimacy. This is why Genesis 2.25 tells us that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. Spiritually speaking, they were naked and open before God. Nothing in their life was hidden. God came first in all their thoughts, and all of life was devoted to him, knowing God, enjoying God, and living as God had commanded them, which meant that they were naked and unashamed with each other. Because God was the constant focus of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that meant that they weren't concerned about themselves, or there was no selfishness. No preoccupation with how others think about me. Because they didn't make themselves the center of their own life, they were by design others focused. Adam was there for Eve to enjoy. He was focused on making her happy. And Eve was there for Adam to enjoy. She was focused on making him happy. And both enjoyed each other in total enjoyment of God. They were consumed with the enjoyment that came out of making God happy. This was life as it was created to be. And I want you to notice how Moses is using this in a a thematic and literary way here, tying together this first section in chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, verse 25, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. By the end of this section, in chapter 3, verse 7, Adam and Eve are clothed and very much ashamed. Do you see the thematic opening and closing of this passage? What gets them to this point? How do we go from naked and unashamed to being clothed and hiding ourselves and drenched in shame? That's what I want us to look at this morning. I think, actually, the entire uh, chapter of chapter 3 deals with this concept of nakedness. It's repeated throughout. It comes up again in verse 10, where Adam hides from God because he was naked. And then look at verse 11. Verse 11. God questions Adam and wants to know, who told you you were naked? And look at how the entire chapter closes in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skins and clothed them. It's almost as if Moses is kind of charting for us this theological plot line of nakedness, a story embedded within the term. There's the naked and unashamed of innocence in 225. And then as they descend into sin, there's the nakedness of uh, verse 7 where they're clothing themselves in fig leaves. And then the low point of verse 10 where they're naked and they're actually hiding from God. And then as God in His grace reaches in and asks them questions, shining His light to expose their sin, they ascend back up and they're they're naked uh, but interrogated by God until the very end of the chapter. They're clothed and animals' skins, and redeemed. An entire storyline of nakedness. I think in what we're looking at this morning, we see mankind's initial descent, their descent from innocence into guilt, from a world with no shame to shamefully hiding from God. So again, how did they get there? Verse 1 of chapter 3 introduces us to our antagonist, to the antagonist, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. To be sure, Moses is not writing this narrative as mythological. Those who want to claim that Genesis is written as ancient myth are clearly people who have never read ancient myth. And when you compare Genesis to other earlier writings of the ancient Near East, which are mythological, it's clear how different Genesis is from those writings. Modern readers tend to read Genesis 3 as a fable because, well, just like in Aesop's fables, we're immediately greeted by a talking snake. And everyone knows snakes don't talk. But that's just the point, isn't it? In fables, myths, and legends, talking animals aren't out of the norm. Every one of Aesop's fables has talking animals. But when you read through Genesis, that's actually not the case. Through the entire Pentateuch, animals are, well, just animals. In other words, it's strange here that the serpent is talking. It's unusual and out of the norm. That's not how fables and myths and legends are meant to be read. Genesis is presenting not itself as a myth. We need to highlight this because the original audience that this book was written to would have read verse 1, and they would have stopped and asked, wait, wait, what's going on here in verse 1? The way the whole narrative of Genesis has been written so far, I think it's supposed to be shocking that the serpent comes onto the scene and he starts talking. A talking snake is not normal, not even in paradise. We can only conclude that the author wants us to understand that some other being something more powerful, something spiritual, has taken possession of the serpent and is speaking through it. Moses actually makes this connection for us later in the Pentateuch when the prophet Balaam's donkey is taken over by an angel of the Lord. And again, surprisingly, the donkey starts talking. In other words, only spiritually possessed animals speak in the Old Testament. And out of the entire Old Testament, which is a really big book, it's only two animals. Balaam's donkey, who has like one line, and then he goes back to being a regular donkey, and this serpent. As John the Apostle read and understood Genesis 3, he comments in Revelation 12 that clearly the serpent is the devil, Satan, who is the greater deceiver. So... Let's not look back at ancient readers and kind of patronize them for calling and calling them simple-minded and backwards for conflating myth and history. They knew what myths and fables were, and they knew Genesis 3 is not that. John Calvin, in a stinging rebuke against those who would call Genesis 3 a myth, reminds us that Satan actually still lies and speaks through God's creatures today. The majority of those creatures, though, not being serpents or animals, but through other fellow human beings, and specifically false teachers, and maybe even those who want you to believe that this is a myth. Moses tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And We see Satan co-opt this serpent's shrewdness in order to introduce doubt, specifically doubt for God's good word. How does he do that? He asks just a simple question, but it's a question laced with all the poison of rebellion. In a surprised and incredulous tone, he says to the woman, did God actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see the subtlety? He doesn't come right out and deny God's word. Satan never comes to us showing his true colors with horns and claws and a foul stench. No, no one's tempted by that Satan. Satan comes to us well-dressed, a nice smile, and with very simple questions. And this question was serial. He introduces the idea that God's word could be subject to our judgment. Right? Up until this point, all truth, all knowledge, everything of what was right and what was wrong, all moral oughtness was completely guided and submitted to what God said. And remember, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was put within the garden to be a sign, a kind of sacrament reminding Adam and Eve that only God had the prerogative to say what was good and what was not good. But Satan's first question introduces the idea that, well... Maybe I can decide. Satan is posing the question, and he's getting Eve to move from underneath God's word to now moving over top of God's word. So far throughout this short history of humanity, God's word has ruled. Since God was king, what the king said was the rule. And Adam and Eve didn't judge the world. They submitted themselves to the word. The word judged and ruled. God's word judged between what was good and what was not good. But now the question, if Eve listens to it, moves Eve out from underneath God's word, relying upon God's wisdom, submitting to him as king, to now standing over God's word and judging whether what God has said is in fact good itself. It's a subtle but disastrous move. What did God say again? Wait, really? He said that? Did, did God really say that you couldn't eat from that tree? I hope you to see how Satan's question is now the air we breathe, right? It's in our DNA to question authority. Our kids come into this world instinctively questioning what mom and dad say. Parents, it's okay and good to discipline them. We all instinctively question what all of our leaders say. Some of you right now are questioning the authority of what God's Word is saying right now. Ever since the fall of humankind, humanity has sought to justify its decisions and actions through something other than God's Word. Why? Because as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we've bought into the question. We, we, we bit into the lie that we should be able to judge what God has said. I have pointed this out before. But notice how Satan doesn't use the covenant name of God here. Remember that? Everywhere else in Genesis chapter 2, 3, and 4, the personal name of God, Yahweh Elohim, is used. It's what your English Bibles translate as the Lord God. But here, Satan only uses the generic name for God, Elohim, simply translated as God, a name which kind of keeps God at a distance. He's not personal. He's not covenantal. He's just God somewhere out there. And apparently, Eve took the bait. Because when she responds in verse 2, she doesn't use the personal and relational name of the Lord God either. In chapter 2, it was Yahweh Elohim who graciously and generously said to Adam and Eve that they could eat and enjoy any of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Everything is here for you, says Yahweh. Everything except this one tree, that's it. But all of that, have at it. Enjoy its fruit. But now as they speak of a, of a remote and distant God, Satan subtly exchanges all of Yahweh's gracious generosity for the idea that God is stingy. Did God actually say you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And to Eve, this was just an innocent question. But little did she know that the poisoned hooks of doubt had taken hold of her heart. Yeah, what, what did God actually say? Well, apparently Eve wasn't so sure herself. She answers by quoting, better yet, paraphrasing what God had stated earlier. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, verse 3, God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. And notice how Eve is subtly, but already bitten into the bait which Satan has lured her with. She's already, in so many words, describe God as stingy. She doesn't use God's personal covenant name, simply the word God. And then when she goes on to quote what God had commanded, she leaves out the word every. God said in chapter 2, verse 16, that Adam and Eve could eat of every tree of the garden. But now Eve leaves out that word every. Yeah, yeah, sure, we we can eat of those trees over there. But then she zeroes in on what really gets her upset. She adds the command, God said we couldn't eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, and neither could we touch it lest we die. You see that? God never said they couldn't touch it. Eve was magnifying God's strictness, his stinginess. Her added comment suggested the idea that God was so harsh and so stingy that even an inadvertent slip of the hand and zap, God would strike her dead. Say, Satan had her right where he wanted. You can almost see his, his feigned surprise at her comment, can't you? Oh, no, God said that? What kind of authoritarian tyrant is he? Friends, before we move on here to the serpent's finishing blow, we need to stop and consider How, what just happened in these verses is still happening today. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan has a deep bag of tricks, but he uses the same ones over and over again, everywhere, all the time. First, men and women still don't really know God's word well. Eve had some idea about what God had said, but she clearly didn't know God's word well, she couldn't quote it properly. She apparently wasn't sure on every detail of what God had commanded. And this is in paradise, mind you. How much more serious is it for us today to not only know God's word, but to know it rightly? In a day and age where Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you. Do you know what God's word means? Are you sure on why God said what he said? The contexts of God's words and commands? Do you love God's word? Do you meditate upon it day and night? Do we have God's words etched upon our hearts so that when we get up in the morning or we go to sleep at night, the words of God are vivid in our minds? Friends, men and women are succumbing to Satan's subtle seductions because they are not deeply rooted in and they are not in love with God's word. Secondly, when Eve added a command a command which God himself never issued, she stepped right into a position where it was actually much easier for Eve to disobey God. Look, this sounds counterintuitive, but it happens all the time. Churches that are legalistic, churches which add all these laws and all these rules and all these commandments which are actually nowhere in the Bible, they think they're honoring God. and and they think that they're doing all these extra rules in order to make God happy, but they're actually rebelling against God. There's a principle here, which Satan has used over and over and over again, where he gets people to be super religious, obeying all these extra-biblical laws, which is actually getting them to not rest and rely on the sufficiency of what God did say. Once someone's there, not resting on what God has said, It's only too easy for them to be okay with disregarding and breaking anything God has said. In Mark chapter 7, after the Pharisees confront and condemn Jesus because he started eating without ceremonially washing his hands, and they ask him, why didn't you or your disciples obey the tradition of our religious rulers? Mind you, this tradition of ceremonially washing hands before you eat is nowhere commanded in the Bible. Listen to how Jesus responds. You honor God with your lips, but your heart is actually far from him. In vain do you worship God, teaching his doctrines these commandments of men. You lead the commandment of God in order to hold to the tradition of men. In fact, says Jesus, by trying to obey these extra rules and traditions, you have made void the word of God. Do you see the root of disobeying God is so often first grounded in a wrong desire to over-obey God. Eve's antinomianism grew out of and was an expression of her legalism. That's how Satan got Eve. That's how Satan got the Pharisees. And that's how Satan's getting so many of us today. A legalistic spirit which says, God doesn't enjoy you dancing. Dancing. God doesn't want you to have a beer for lunch after church. God only accepts you if you come to church wearing a tie. And this over-religious mentality demonically darkens our understanding of who God really is. It it, it dulls our senses to God's generosity of all the good things that we can enjoy and do. It, 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 It destroys our affections for feeling God's love. It's a distortion and a lie about God. I think it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ which is designed to actually deliver us from this kind of lie. The gospel alone puts on grand display the undisputed truth that God loves us so dearly as a father and wants us to enjoy him and all good gifts. He loves us so much, in fact, that he actually sent his son to take our punishment for us. God is not a stingy God withholding his best things from us. No, actually, God has given up his most cherished and precious treasure, his only begotten son, in order to have us know his love. The legalism which Eve played into in her response to Satan is a legalism which is still so present in many of us today. And Friends, may we fight that legalism by loving the gospel more and more. Alas, Eve was well within Satan's grip. The serpent, now emboldened by Eve's diminished view of God's character, steps in with a flat-out lie. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's now the serpent's word over and against Yahweh's word. And Eve is in this absurd position to judge between the two. This is Satan's temptation, right? You can be like God, knowing and judging yourself between good and evil. And in a sense, the very fact that Eve was even considering the choice, put her in the place of God. In other words, the sin was beginning to give birth. How often does this happen with us, where some temptation enters into our mind, some thought, and rather than quickly turning to think about something else or or quickly going in prayer to God, we, we linger, right? We consider the thought, three, maybe five, maybe seven seconds, and boom, we're locked in. The thought now gives way to action. Sin has birthed and has brought us down. Here the temptation lingered for Eve. Sure, God created us in his image and likeness, but but I want to be like God. What is it that God sees that that I can't see? It's as if God created us blind, that, that he didn't want us to see something. What is it that he didn't want us to see? What is God holding out from us? And the words of the serpent just sat there. Eat, and your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Something fascinating happens in verse 6. Moses, as it were, I think, turns his camera and zooms and focuses in on just Eve alone. There's a kind of silence, and we get this internal narrative in verse 6 of what's going on in Eve's mind. In one sense, it shows the the radically inward-focused and self-centeredness of sin. Eve, no longer aware of her husband, Adam, and no longer concerned with God, only has to dialogue with herself. What do I want? As she does something here that will be a mark of rebellion for the rest of history. Look at verse 6. She looks at the tree... And decides, based on what she sees, because it was delightful to her eyes, that it was good to eat of the fruit. In other words, rather than to submit and obey to God's word, a word which she heard, Eve trusted and acted on what she saw. And this principle will carry on out throughout Scripture and is even how we make decisions today as fallen creatures. Later in Genesis, when Abraham and Lot are on the verge of entering into the promised land and the two will split ways, it becomes clear that Abraham chooses the better land based on obeying what God had promised, what he heard, and Lot chooses a corrupted place to live based on what he saw. The city of Sodom looked like an impressive and an enticing place. Or think later about King David who experiences God's blessings early in life because he acts on what he hears in God's word, the words spoken by the prophets, versus David later in life, who experiences cursing and death because he acted on what he saw with his eyes, namely, beautiful Bathsheba. So we see it here with Eve. In disobedience to what she had heard, to God's word, that she should not eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, she instead acts on what she sees. In essence, Eve has put herself in the place of God. Even before she plunges her teeth into the delectable fruit, she has allowed the temptation to flower into this internal sinful decision. And truly, truly, I say to you, even if you have lusted after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. Here, Eve coveted in her heart what she could not have. For There was only one thing left to do. Eat of it, so she did. She took of its fruit and ate, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The verse is so spectacular, I think precisely because it's so unspectacular. Moses describes the actual eating of the fruit in a very unsensational way. Isn't that how sin so often is? The temptation and the build-up is more exciting than the actual sin. Then you sin and it's just the gnawing silence of a guilty conscience, that wasn't what I expected. Here's the shocker. Did you catch it? Adam was with her the whole time. (laughs) He was there, her covenant head, her one flesh protector, the man who was charged with leading her to know God's word and worship God with all her heart. He was there, and he did nothing. He was just standing there. How many husbands still just stand there today? They fail to step in when Satan tempts. They fail to lead their families in seeking after God. They fail in bringing God's word to bear upon their marriages and helping their wives not only fight sin, but love God and enjoy Him. Friends, even if that is true of you, spouses who desire a a Christ-like husband and not an Adam-like husband, There is hope that in Christ you have a perfect groom. I want to encourage you there with that. But the mentality finds its root here in Adam. The text says that Eve gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her. We know that he was there the whole time because when the serpent started asking his questions back in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, he used the plural word for you. Did God actually say, you all shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? So it's clear that Adam's failure was his complete passivity. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul clearly states in 1 Timothy 2.14 that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was. He was there, but he wasn't tricked. He saw through the cunning. He saw through the lie. And yet he still ate the fruit with Eve. So what do we make of this? I think, again, Kent Hughes hits the nail on the head when he writes that Adam sinned willfully. He sinned with eyes wide open and without hesitation. His sin was freighted with sinful self-interest. He watched Eve take the fruit, waited to see what would happen, and when he saw that, well, nothing happened to her, then he ate. He sinned willfully, assuming there would be no consequences. But oh, how wrong he was. The fate of the rest of mankind rested upon his covenantal shoulders. The rest of the Bible never puts a word of blame upon Eve. Instead, 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that death came through one man. In Adam we all died, says Paul. Or as was read for us earlier by Will out of Romans 5, sin entered through one man, Adam, and through him death has reigned. Adam, the covenantal head, had a special responsibility. And he should have stepped in on account of that responsibility and and, and stepped on the head of this oddly talking serpent. But he doesn't. He just listens. He followed. And he rebelled. Up until this point, there was a clear and God-ordained order And how everyone and everything related to one another. God, the Creator, ruled as King over all creation. At the pinnacle of God's created order was mankind man and woman made in God's image, both meant to rule and have dominion over the animal world. And then within that relationship, the woman was taken out of man and made to be as a helper for the man. She was his equal, to be sure, but she was tasked with serving Adam. In ruling over the beasts of the field. So we have a, a divinely ordered God to mankind, the husband leading the wife, and both of them ruling over the animals. But now Satan takes the form of a serpent, an animal within the animal kingdom, and he goes first to the woman to tempt and lead her in rebellion. She, in following after the serpent, in turn goes to lead her husband, and who following her, turns to rebel against God the whole relational order of how God had organized the cosmos has been flipped upside down. An animal ruling over the woman who led the man who has now disregarded God. And now for the first time in human history, shame and en- shame had entered into mankind's vocabulary. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve immediately lost their childlike innocence. What Satan had said to them was only a half-truth. Their eyes were certainly opened, but what they saw brought shame. and They couldn't now unsee what they saw. Innocence was lost. And they seek to then do what mankind, I think, has been trying to do ever since. Cover up their sin with fig leaves. And next week, we're going to look at the results of sin. But I want you to notice here now what sin and shame led Adam and Eve to do. They clothed themselves. I'm convinced that that this clothing of themselves, what they're doing here, continues today in the form of every other religion in the world. Later in verse 21, we'll see God clothe Adam and Eve in garments of animal skin. In other words, God will have to shed blood to cover their shame. And this fits with what God had promised, right? In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Sin brings and demands death. But did Adam and Eve immediately die? No. And part of the answer is because God would show profound grace. He's going to give Adam and Eve a promise of a future child who would come and redeem them. Someone who would come and give his life for theirs. And that promise gets symbolized in the clothing of animal skin. In the shed blood, only someone's death, only bloodshed can atone for your sin and cover your shame. But before God performs that profoundly gracious act, here Adam and Eve try and hide their shame through makeshift clothes. They they cover their sin not with blood, but with vegetables. Friends, every other religion in the world is essentially vegetables. Vegetables man's feeble attempt at covering up their sin and covering up their shame in any way that they can without sacrifice of Christ's death. It's uh, no coincidence in Romans 14 where Paul says that we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ, being clothed in his righteousness alone. But religion says, no, you can cover up your shame yourself. If you do this religious thing, or participate in this religious exercise, God's not going to see your sin. You can essentially hide your sin behind the fig leaves of religion. But we know that's not true. All religion, like Adam and Eve clothing themselves in fig leaves, only hides our sin and shame from one another, but not from God. Christianity alone says that it is only by the blood of Christ that anyone's sin can be washed away. Friends, as we end here this morning, do you feel your shame as you stand exposed before God? In love, he offers his son. He says, come to him and be covered by Christ's death. Take off the fig leaves of religion. I don't think that just coming to church covers your shame and sin before God. I don't think that you, you attend a Bible study throughout the week or that you, you give a little bit extra in tithing or that you help here with the family or you do this or that thing or whatever religious activity is. Take the fig leaves off and clothe yourself in Christ. Do you know that your own sin keeps you from enjoying peace with God? Friends, God has given you a son. Come to him and have your sins completely forgiven in his shed blood as we end this sad and sorrowful section on the fall of humanity, I want us to do so remembering that in Christ alone, our sin has been dealt with and our shame is covered. Let's pray.